Guys, GoHunt.com Insider is the title sponsor of this podcast. Get everything you need in one spot. Join Insider today. Find and plan your hunts more effectively than ever. Complete state coverage. See detailed information for every unit, every species, every hunt. Interactive maps. Quickly find hunts that meet your exact search criteria and explore them easily. Strategy articles. Learn new things and find hidden opportunities with exclusive articles. Species breakdowns. Top trophy units are hiding in plain sight. Find them with our statistics and historical data. Another great thing about GoHunt.com Insider is they have monthly giveaways that are worth 100,000 plus a year. Each month you will automatically be entered to win gear, tags, and hunts. That is if you're an Insider member. Past prizes include a $22,000 doll sheep hunt, uh, three Red Rock Precision Rifles with the $21,000 value, uh, five Zeiss Conquest HD binoculars with a $7,500 value. Not to mention this past July they gave away four hunts, an antelope hunt, two elk hunts, and a mule deer hunt. Join Insider today and get a $50 Kuyu gift card. All you have to do is go to gohunt.com forward slash insider, click on the blue join now button, use the promo code jscott at checkout, and gohunt.com will send you a $50 Kuyu gift card. I want to thank gohunt.com insider for being the title sponsor of this podcast. Guys, welcome to the podcast. Today we're going to have a great episode on part two of bow hunting elk tactics with our friend Craig Steele of Exclusive Pursuit Outfitters. Before we get to the episode, I wanted to cover a few things. As you know, GoHunt.com is the title sponsor of this podcast, and DeadeyeOutfitters.com is also a sponsor. And DeadeyeOutfitters.com is a lifestyle hunting apparel company for hunters by hunters. Uh, Deadeye Outfitters makes quality t-shirts, sweatshirts, and hats designed with hunters in mind. Uh, go check out their website and you'll see what I mean. Use the J. Scott promo code and receive a 10% discount on all purchases at DeadeyeOutfitters.com. I want to thank both GoHunt.com Insider and DeadeyeOutfitters.com for their sponsorship of this podcast. Uh, I want to thank you guys, the listeners, for tuning in. I want to thank you for all the positive comments and uh, positive ratings on iTunes. Uh, that's great. We're getting some great feedback. I want to thank you for all the comments that I've gotten through email and, and Facebook and Instagram messaging. I get multiple emails every day from people telling me how much they enjoy the podcast, and I just thank you for that. Um, guys, we've got elk season, deer season, all the 2015 fall seasons uh, right here in front of us, and um, it's just going to be an exciting year. I want to uh, just uh, encourage you guys to get out there and spend as much time as you can and, and enjoy it uh, while you can. And uh, thank you for your support of this podcast. Uh, you can follow along at our, at our uh, website at jscottoutdoors.com, uh, on our Instagram page at jscottoutdoors. My associate, Dar Colburn, at Dar Colburn on Instagram. Uh, our YouTube channel, J. Scott Outdoors, and Facebook page, J. Scott Outdoors. And if you'd like to send me an email, comment, or question, uh, you can send that to jscottoutdoors at gmail.com. And uh, let's get right to the episode. Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we've got a cool episode. We're going to continue our talk about tactics for better elk hunting. 
With me on the show today is friend of the podcast, Craig Steele of Exclusive Pursuit Outfitters and OrgHunt.com. Craig, how you doing? I'm doing well, man. How are you doing, Jay? Uh, I'm doing pretty good. You know, we're creeping our way through August here and getting closer and closer to the fall uh, hunting seasons in Arizona. And I, I know all across the West, things are kicking off uh, archery deer, archery antelope, archery elk. And i uh, got friends up hunting doll sheep right now and stone sheep. And, and um, you know, it's, it's uh, 2015 fall season is right here, and I'm excited to be a part of it. How about you? I'm excited, but... You know, like anything else, you always feel like you can prepare more. So Yeah, I mean, uh, speaking about that, I mean, it, it's one of those things that uh, I don't think you could ever prepare enough. And I think at some point you just have to jump in and, and start going for it. I know you've been doing a lot of scouting. How's things looking out there and uh, out out there on, on the range? In, in Arizona, it's looking well. I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of older feed. Um, some spots got good rain. Uh, monsoon kind of dried out, but it's looking like it's going to fire up for a couple of days. We'll see. They're calling for a upgrade in the monsoon for the end of August and September. So if that holds in through September, so if that holds true, we're all going to be swimming around in our trucks as usual. Um, but uh, it's it's looking good, man. I just anytime scouting, you just you never feel like you prepare enough. At least me. Um, and, and, you know, you wish you could have that week before the hunt, like Groundhog Day and play it over and over again and then be ready come the first day. But unfortunately, you only have so many days you can get out and scout and prepare. And But, yeah, no, it's looking good, man. I know you've been looking for antelope and I know you've been scouting for elk and, and a little bit of sheep. And um, so um it's, these are the days that uh, we love and i'm anxious to get back um in into arizona and i get back at the end of this month and uh, i've been just fishing my brains out up here and and rowing a lot of my friends down the rivers and we've uh, managed to catch virtually every single trout in colorado there's a few left so we're we're going to try and clean those up here the the last few days here but um Things have been great. We had a, a, a pretty good green drake hatch here on the Roaring Fork River, and it was a little bit sporadic, as it always is, you know, very, very good at times and then very sporadic. Um, but the dry fly fishing has been good, and, and uh, you know, What's one the of the things... What's the difference between dry fly and wet fly? Okay, so you've got dry fly fishing, which is, takes place on the surface, and that's mainly where you're fishing adult insects. So... Uh, with the mayflies, with the caddis, with the stoneflies, those are the, the ones that you actually see fluttering and flying away. As opposed to when you hear wet fly, those are usually the nymphal stage uh, of those bugs. And, and, you know, those most of the aquatic insects, you know, 90% of their life is lived underneath the surface of the water. So um, for a fisherman, a fly fisherman, uh, if, if you were just a dry fly fisherman, there, there are only certain times that you can catch fish on the surface, whereas a hundred percent of the time you can always catch fish nymphing, what's called nymphing or fishing below the surface with the insects in their nymphal stage, uh, before they become adults. When they become adults, they, they either submerge and come to the surface and hatch emerge to the surface and then their wings dry and they fly off. And that, that leaves a very vulnerable time for the trout while the insects are drying their wings on the surface of the water to eat them. 
the other very vulnerable part is a lot of the insects actually come back a day or two later and and lay their eggs on the surface of the water so they're bouncing on the water and so the trout take that time to um to uh jump up and and eat, eat them off the surface but uh, people that like to catch a lot of fish are probably going to be nymph fishermen and fish below the surface because trout are always feeding on stuff below the surface because of the abundance of aquatic insects below the surface. So that's kind of a that's kind of a little uh, tutorial there on wet versus dry fly. You have me at hello. <laughs> <laughs> Was that too much information? <laughs> Um, today I want to talk about tactics for better elk hunting and we've already covered a five-part series in a previous episode. I want to bang through some of these um, tactics here and I'm going to go off my notes here and, and number six is use the bugle to locate. In my opinion the bugle is an overrated call that most people abuse. I know a few of the best callers in the world with a bugle, and they will tell you most of the, their call-ins come by way of their cow calling. A bugle can be – now, by the way, this is a very um, controversial subject. So a, a bugle can be very effective to get a bull to sound off at a great distance. In my opinion, there are only a few guys that could blow the bugle good enough to consistently call in bulls. And when I say bulls, Craig, I mean older bulls the type that you want to that you, you would want to harvest think of it like this um, at a distance of 200 yards you can easily distinguish a guy with a bugle or a guy throwing out cow calls I think the guy with the bugle stands out every time now I can sense my email lighting up uh, you know everybody getting all carried away and telling me how much their bugles work but um, in my opinion, you will call in more bulls with, with a cow call than any other call. With that being said, if you're very good with your bugle, then go for it. It can sometimes be a difference in calling in a big bull or not. I want to be clear in, in, in what I'm talking about in bugling is I feel like I can pick out most hunters that bugle. I hear them. I go, that's a hunter. In my opinion, most mature elk can do the same thing, whereas cow calling I think even someone that's not very good at cow calling, you know, at 150 yards, I can't tell whether it's an elk or, or a human. I think one of the things that people need to work on is their sequencing, either with the bugle or with the cow call, and I think that's what gives them away most of the time. I will say that I don't think elk can tell if it's a human. Now, I will say that I don't think elk can differentiate between a bugle from a human or from an actual elk. I will say that they probably, and this is just my opinion, because I go through the same thing with coyote calling. I will say that I think elk can differentiate between, they know pretty much every other bull's bugle in that area. And so if you let off a bugle and you're an unknown to him, in my opinion, he's going to try to stay away from you. Um, and that's just my interpretation of it. I just don't think analytically the elk think can identify Hey, that's you know, Craig's still over there blowing on his on his bugle. That's just my opinion. Now, do do I think that uh again, going back to that, I do think they can identify, say, hey, that's not uh, you know, whatever. I don't recognize that bull, you know, because they bachelor up and all summer with the bulls and they 
you know, right now they're doing little bull sounds and, um, you know, they, they know what every bull, um, in, in the country, um, what, what their, what their bugle sounds like. Um, yeah. and, and that's, you know, so I guess my thing is on the semantics of it is, is I think a lot of guys, um, I do that all the time with, with, uh, with, uh, predator hunting, calling coyotes. Um, I hear a lot of people say, don't use coyote sounds because they won't, they won't come. Don't howl because they won't come when to the contrary, everything is a battle of either out in the wild of food or territory. Now, 99% of the time, in my opinion, and I think you're of the same opinion, a bull is going to want, a big bull has learned. He doesn't want, he wants to avoid a fight. He wants to avoid unknowns. He wants to go as undetected as possible because he's getting pestered all the time. And, you know, he has the cows. So, the best, the best thing for him to do is to avoid everybody. Um, I will bugle um, to locate. Um, I do far less bugling than I used to 10 or 15 years ago. Um, I, I tend to, um, you know, let's take it this way. I think everybody's looking for that roadmap or that, you know, that one, two, three, four step to call in that big bull, you know, when there's a lot of feel that has to go on. There's a, a num, numerous or infinite amount of situations that has to happen. And a lot of it's feel. A lot of it's Jay Scott saying, that bull is bedded up over there and I've been following him for three days and, you know, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to do these soft cow calls and I'm going to fade away and that's going to be the most effective tactic. Whereas if you don't have that experience, you know, you go in there and you've never called in a big bullet or you haven't followed him or you haven't had the, uh, the, the, the ability or, or the knowledge to, you know, analytically, uh, basically break down and, and, and follow him by his bugle, um, to know that that's that bull, you know, you, you probably aren't going to be as effective. I've, I've had greater success bugling bulls and, I don't let out big long bugles like I used to. It's kind of basically on the cadence of what the bull does, and it really depends. But this is very rare. I'm talking probably I do it maybe, maybe three or four times in a two-week archery elk season. I may do this maybe two to four times, maybe. And it's generally, typically, it seems like in the afternoon when I watch a big bull go bed up with some cows, and I let him dictate the tempo. Um, and if, but I don't generally let out a lot of big bugles. I'll do, if, if cow calls I don't feel are working, I'll do some big bull sounds. But, you know, I don't call as much as what I used to. You probably call, maybe even call more than, than I do. It's, it's all situational. I like to be kind of that, that hybrid guy that can call, cut them off, do whatever it takes to get them on the ground. But anyway, that, that's my well, two cents. I, I will say a couple things. I will say that last year in Montana, my eyes were opened a little bit to bugling. Uh, the bulls were really bugling, and I was cow calling along there with Jason Harrison. And, you know, they would respond and such, but they were so 
into what they were doing with the, with the, with the guys back and forth, you know, carrying on mm-hmm. with each other that, that actually bugling was, was calling in more bulls than cow calling. And I will say on a lot of over the counter hunts and a lot of stuff where you're uh, in States where you're just trying to harvest a bull bugling is fantastic. Actually, yeah. uh, small bulls, I, I, you know, if you just get in there and small bull squeal and, mm-hmm. and stuff, you can call in a lot of young bulls. I'm more talking about guys that are preparing for their Arizona hunts. And the, in my opinion, the biggest mistake that guys make is they bugle way too much. They're not very good. Uh, and they don't sound right and they call it the wrong time. Yeah. So what they end up doing is, is creating a worse situation than just being quiet and, and listening for the bulls. If they're just trying to harvest a bull, then bugle up, you know, bugle like crazy and you'll have a five point, you know, a two year old bull come running in and you can shoot them. Now there's a guy named Danny Moore, uh, Michael Park, Casey Brooks. They all love to bugle. They bugle a lot, and they've all killed big bulls. So I'm not saying it can't be done, but they are also very good-sounding buglers. I will completely disagree with you, Craig. I believe that those elk in Arizona, in the units that get extreme amount of pressure, they learn to know what is human and what is not human. I believe that they might not recognize Craig Steele's bugle as a human, but a lot of the bugles that I hear out in the woods, they're going to go, that ain't right. And what happens is a lot of times they shut up and go the other way. But you, you, think, you think analytically that yes. that bull processes it and says, yes. that is a yes. human. Yes. I believe that they recognize they've heard enough bad bugling that they go, I, I, I recognize bad sounds. I recognize recognize bad timing and I recognize that came from the truck that I just heard the car door slam and they learned to 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 to, uh, attach that with human so yes I a hundred percent I've seen it too many times I believe that they go quiet because they think that that's a human now do they really grasp the concept of human do they really grasp the concept of it's elk season no but what they feel is pressure and I think when they start feeling that pressure and they hear those sounds that aren't right and they're not at the right time, I definitely 100%, and we can roll around in the dirt about this, but I believe that people need to stop bugling as much as they do. Is, you know, 20 years, this will be, I think, the 21st year in the, I'll have to go back and count, but 20 plus years in the Arizona elk woods. And the number one thing I, well, one of the biggest things, mistakes I think people make is they bugle too much. Moving on with that, and obviously I'm not letting you get the last <laughs> word. <laughs> um, being proficient with your cow call. The cow call can be made with a diaphragm, an open read call, a squeeze call. Whichever call you uh, choose to use, it is necessary to be very good at it. If you cannot consistently make nasally good-sounding cow tones, then keep the call in your pocket. This is my opinion, okay? I think all three styles of cow calls can work with extreme effectiveness. The easiest to use, in my opinion, would be the squeeze call. The second easiest would be the open read call, and the hardest to master would be the diaphragm. You can actually use all three at, at, at different times or at the same time to be effective on bulls. I think it's important to sound nasally. I think the sequence of the call oftentimes is what gives the hunter away. Uh, I believe the best teacher, of course, is the elk themselves. 
I think Steve Chappell uh, had an audio uh, natural elk calling CD years ago. I think it, it's a phenomenal resource. Um, I believe also I really like Steve's stuff on YouTube, and I believe he, you know, I've been in the field a lot with him calling bulls, and he makes very, very good sounds. So I think anybody that wants to, to get better, I think um, listen to Steve Chappell, listen to some of his audio CDs and his YouTube channel. Um, and, and, and I want to be clear that I believe most all bulls can be called in with the cow call where I do not believe most all bulls can be called in with the bugle. Um, so I think practice is, is huge. I think, you know, throwing the diaphragm in two days before the season is not going to cut it. Um, I think, I think people need to take calling more seriously or not call at all. I, I, I think I see too often where people use calling as just, oh, I'm just going to try this as a last resort. Mm, I probably wouldn't try it at all if it's going to be your last resort. I think a lot of it's situational, um, that, that, and I think you have to have realistic sounds. Um, I think a lot of it's situational. I think there's a lot of things that go on um, in the woods, in a bull's uh, little pea brain that uh, we can't process and that uh, that you you have there uh, and and a lot of the best callers such as yourself and steve and whatnot they've been through a number of experiences that has enabled them to grasp as much knowledge as humanly possible on a species that's that's not us and so it gives you an, an advantage um on you know based on your past failures and success on when you know kind of that tone or cadence that you want to that you want to let out and by feel and that if you don't have that um, there's always the anomaly out there of somebody that gets out of the truck and and you know walks in their you know quarter mile or half mile and lets out a couple hoochie mamas and just happens to catch that 400 inch bull that just broke off his cows and he comes in um, but that's an anomaly. I, I don't think that's, 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 you know, you may do that once in a great while. Um, and so I think like anything else, you have to practice at it and then you have to be in those situations to get better. Um, yeah. and that's, yeah, I, I mean, I think, yeah, being out there with them and learning what to say and when to say it, you know, I think that's important. Um, I think number eight, do not cow call too loud one of the first things that gives away in my opinion human elk callers is the volume of their calls the next thing that gives away their their them away is their sequencing um i like to think finesse when you cow call i like to think trying to sweet talk a bull um i i, I don't try and be abrasive now there are times when i will get abrasive and get you know kind of naggy and and uh insistent um, but I think guys overall cow call too loud. And I think their sequencing is, is like, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and just like not, not what you hear those cows doing, not saying that you don't hear cows from time to time doing that. But most of the time when you hear something of that sequencing, you, you they're on alert, they're alarmed and they're trying to gather up their calves and they're, you know, like heading out of town. So I think, I think people need to call more with more finesse. 
uh, with more emotion, but not necessarily as loud. Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd agree. I mean, there's there's a lot of guys out there that just rake on a bite down and, you know, or, or you know, whatever, you know, hoochie mama it to death. Um, and, and it, again, there's always the anomaly, but, you know, more, more likely than not, that bull's going to go the other way. The big bull. Yeah. Number nine, try your elk calls. This is a big one. Try your elk calls in front of a friend and get some feedback. I mean, a lot of times um, I've done it before with Dara. I'm like, how do you think this sounds? And I'll go, you know, 20 yards, 50 yards, 100 yards, and he'll give me feedback. And I think we've all been in those situations where you've gone on hunts and your buddy gets out his call, whether it be turkey call, predator calling or what, and you know it sounds horrible you know it's not right. Maybe there's some great parts of the call and Dar will be like, that doesn't sound right. You know, that last part or the front part or, you know, it's too long or you're sequencing. And I think getting good feedback, you know, you can really learn. I think the hard part is accepting constructive criticism. Mm-hmm. No, no, definitely. I mean, you, you have to, you have to, First, you have to know what they sound like, you know, and that's the great thing about the web. And, you know, you can go on YouTube and pick up, you know, bulls. Curse Row does a good job or cows and, and, and really get a realistic sound for them. And then you do need somebody to listen because a lot of times your voice um, sounds different. Just like when you, you know, hear this played back, you know, and I'm like, man, I don't sound like that. But you actually do to other people. But since it's coming out of your mouth, you know, with a call. It doesn't sound exactly how you may interpret it. So I, yeah. I definitely think that's something you have to do to, to get better at that. Um, Absolutely. Especially before you go out in the field because you go out in the field you're and, and you haven't practiced and, and whatnot. It, it's not going to get better. It's only going to get worse. The, the one thing I would add to that, too, is, you know, getting constructive criticism, but knowing that everybody's going to sound a little different. What you're looking for when you're listening to a friend or you're being listened to is, how's my sequencing? Am I making any sounds that you do not hear out there? You know, um, and then I think what I wanted to add to that is you got to go into the field and call with confidence. You can't go and and be shy you can't go and 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 not believe in your call if you do not believe in your call don't use it at all you have to get to where you can be confident and use your call in certain situations to make it work for you but if you go in you know kind of shy and you're going to squawk the call it's going to it's going to um you know it's it, it's going to hold up on you and you're going to you know, walk away with your tail between your legs. You do have to have some confidence if you're going to pull the call out. Mm -hmm. No, definitely. Or else you'll, I mean, you get the shakes and whatever else and excited out there. You're, and and you're not calling. I mean, it it just, it it compounds, you know, and it just makes it worse. Number 10, while stalking, learn to cut bulls off by using the wind. One of the most successful tactics for elk hunting has been described by one of the best big bull hunters around, Randy Ulmer. He talks about learning to cut off bulls while paralleling them. The idea is to stay out to the side of a bull uh, so, so the wind is in both of your faces. Parallel the bull until you can use an angle and knife in from the side. Lots of times the bulls will walk right by you. This is an extremely deadly tactic. 
Um, I know bull. I know Craig that uh, you know you you hedge bulls and follow bulls, and um, you know it's a very fine line because you know at night there are a lot of times out in open areas, maybe by tanks out in meadows, and then as it gets light, they almost always put the put the wind uh, in their nose so that that they're always going into the wind. So. In the morning, if the wind's coming out of the north, they're gonna, you know, they're gonna be going into the wind. If it's changing, they're they're gonna always pretty much go with the wind in their face. So the challenge is, is you can be behind them, both your their nose is in the wind and your nose is into the wind, but you're always behind them. So what 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 I learned from Randy years and years ago in an article that I read is you get to the side of them, parallel them. And then at the opportune time, you have to cut in at a 45 or even a 90 and get out in front of them. But the trick is if you get out in front of them, your wind is now going to blow to them. And, and it becomes a very, very fine line of paralleling those bulls, using your wind checker. And then when you think you've got an opening where you can get in front where they're just going to you know, basically file right in front of you, that's the key. Yeah. No, I, I – uh, this – if if I'm going to talk about one talk, tactic out of all these uh, now, when I was younger, I used to call a lot more. Um, and, and, you know, again, the more of I've learned from other people and, you know, including Randy and other guides I've been around and, and hunters and then on my own hunt, this tactic to me is, is in my personal opinion, for my the way I, I like to hunt is probably um, the most deadly on big bulls. Um, and, and not that you go out there and you, you, uh, are successful at it every time. And it takes a lot of patience. Um, and, and, a, and a lot of, uh, cause there may be times when you do this for two or three days, um, before you're able to, uh, get in there and slip in on that big bull just because of, you know, you might have to back out because the wind changes or, 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 you know, you, you can't, the bull shut up and you can't figure where he's at figure out where he's at and the wind, you know, dies down or, or whatever. Usually it's typically because of the wind and, and have to back out. Um, but it's, it is very deadly. It also is, is one of those, like you said, you know, if, if, if a guy gets too far, um, if the wind does change, um, it could blow that elk out of the country. So, I mean, it, it, it works both ways, but this, I love to use this tactic. I think it's, you know, and it, there's a lot of feel by there, kind of just like calling a big bull. Um, there's a lot of feel and a lot of experience that goes on there, and you, you have to have some, some things go your way. So um, that's how I, you know, essentially, uh, well, not my last bull, but my, my last archery elk hunt in Unit 10, that's, that's, that's how I killed him. I just kept nudging around him and then, you know, eventually he got in a spot and some bulls chased him up kind of by me and, and I shot him at 30 yards. Um, and it was all because, you know, I had my buddy back there, um, you know, half mile every now and again. I just told him to try to keep him bugling and he really didn't keep him bugling. Um, the other bulls kept him bugling, um, but it, it worked out in my favor. But playing the wind and, and trying to nudge him until you can get up there and get a shot or he makes a mistake. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's something you have to learn by trial, trial and error. And 
it, you know, if it's your first hunt, then you're just going to have to go for it. And you have to know that at sometimes when you're paralleling them, there's times when you're running. Yes. There's times when you're jogging, and then there's times when you're going very, very slow. The other thing you have to watch out when you're paralleling elk is that you don't bump into other elk that eventually spook your elk. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it's kind of a real passive aggressive so you're real passive you're staying out on the edge and then all of a sudden when your time comes boom you get real aggressive you cut in there and you get ready for your shot um and and sometimes it may be a bull that you you hear him bugling you don't even know what he is but you have to use the tactic to at least see what he is evaluate the bull and decide if he's something you want or not Mm -hmm. no no definitely i mean going back to bump on other elk i don't i don't know if a lot of guys well, I know there's a, there's a handful of guys, guys that do it all the time that know, but there's anybody that's you know hasn't been on a lot of elk hunts understands when a big bull goes and beds with his cows that there's going to be other elk around them, and they may not have bugled their way into there, so you may not know that they're there, um, but but any time you have in September um, when you have a bull with cows, there's going to be other elk around those the, that herd bull. And, uh, you know, the closer they get to bedding, um, the, the, the more silent they seem to get. Um, occasionally they do erupt. Um, but it, it, another bull could be laying up there and, and really mess up your whole plans if you're not aware of, of your surroundings and that, that there's another elk that slipped in between you and the bull and, and his cows. So, yeah. Um, Number 11, when a bull is raking its antlers, it is time to charge into bow range. This is a perfect time to travel towards the bull as quickly as possible. When you hear antlers raking against trees or, or brush, you should be moving. The other thing is if you hear antlers against antlers, if they're fighting, you need to charge in there. Be as aggressive as you can. Oftentimes, you can walk right into bow range or closer. I've been able to get close enough to touch elk when they're thrashing trees. I would not advise touching a bull or getting so close as you may startle them and they're going to turn on you with their antlers. But I, I, I tell people this all the time. If you hear them raking, you move. When you stop, they'll hesitate, you stop. When they go back to raking, you literally can run and make as much noise because they can't hear anything. That, I mean, that's, um, that's like the biggest, that's like the it's all situational. We're, we're predators. We need to take advantage of situations like this. And that, I, I think for me, this is probably one of the number one headaches in hunting or guiding or helping somebody that's a novice uh, bow hunter in this situation is they look at me like I'm nuts when a fight or specifically when a bull's raking a tree. You go. You go, and but you have to be very keen on when it stops, and then you when stop. When it stops, you stop. You stop, yeah. but you have yeah. to go. And I get a lot of guys or a lot of people that I've helped that kind of, for lack of better terms, pussyfoot around. And there's a time to go, and then there's a time to creep. And when, when in this situation, when a bull starts thrashing a tree, it's time to go. And especially if it's the bull you want to kill. Um, and it's just, it's just that simple, you know, you got to be Absolutely. aggressive. You got to be aggressive. And that goes to my number 12. When bulls are fighting, it's time to get aggressive. We talked about that. When you hear those antlers cl- clanking, you absolutely need to double time it, run at that sound 
but as quickly as you're running, you need to be able to stop when they stop, and then they'll go back at it. You can make up three or 400 yards like that if you're keen on, as soon as you hear them clanking, you go back to running. And when I mean running, I mean going full out. And I, I've even run into bulls that are fighting, and there's cows all around and other small bulls. And I just continue to go right at them. Now I've got visual on them, and I continue to run at them. The other elk are running off the whole thing, and the bulls are fighting. They don't, they're not paying attention to what the five points doing or the other cows. So you need to be, you know, you need to get very, very aggressive when you hear the antlers clanking. Um, I want to talk about, let's see, number 13, bed the bull during midday and stay close enough to hear him when he gets up. In my opinion, this is a killer tactic, but I, I do want to say that if you get close to the elk in their beds, you do run the risk of them winding you. Uh, the wind can get very inconsistent and swirly, and that is one of the hardest things to do is to stay in there tight with them all day. Um, but obviously with the wind right, you wait until the cows are all settled down and bedded down, bedded down. E ease in even closer to range. Oftentimes he'll get up throughout the couple hour period to check his cows, you know, for signs of, of, of being uh, worthy to be bred and he'll walk right into bow range. A lot of times I'll get down, I'll lay flat on the ground so to eliminate as much scent as possible and I'll just kind of hang there and my hunting partner, Dar Colburn, is very, very good at this. He, he, he likes to stay in there tight. He loves to crawl up on elk that are bedded and then just wait and see if an opportunity comes his way. Mm -hmm. No, definitely. I, th I think you, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, it, uh, I, I've, I've done this two situations and I've, you know, um, I think first off, you need to know that you're in there on his bed. Um, it's not something that you want to go aimlessly walking along through the woods during the middle of the day. Um, you know, it's different if you're walking out and catch something bedded. But you don't want to go trying to locate something, in my opinion, during the middle of the day. If you if you follow that bull to where he's bedding and you got a pretty good idea, then that is a great tactic. But I, what I don't want to get is a bunch of guys that have never hunted before thinking, you know, from 10 to 2, I'm going to go walk through their beds, you know, because you will blow more elk than what you have an opportunity at. But it is deadly because, like you said, what a lot of guys don't do, and there's a lot of guys' habits are now – is to hunt from early in the morning till 10 o'clock and call it good, go back and eat lunch and then come back out three to, you know, dark and hunt. That's kind of the, there's a lot of habits that have been in place, uh, you know, instilled, I think on the, on the general public. Cause you know, uh, they don't, it's hot. The bulls are bedded. They don't talk. Well, they do talk and they do get up just like you said. Um, but you have to be very, very cautious on how you do it. And, you know, a guy like Dar, um, who's a straight up killer. I mean, he's, he's been around the block or two and knows how to get it done in those situations. But for, you don't want to just walk in their bedding area during the middle of the day and just hope to get lucky on a bedded bull. You, you want, if you can follow a big bull to his bed, um, and hang close to him, you, you can get yourself in an opportunity that, that may end you, uh, with you arrowing that big bull as he walks by you. So, Absolutely. 
And I think it's important to if if you're hunting one particular elk and you you're it's just the beginning of the season. The last thing you want to do is interrupt his pattern. So I don't want you to think by giving you the tip of you know getting in there tight with them in their beds. I think that's an aggressive tactic. I think it's a great tactic if you're just trying to harvest a bull or just harvest a nice bull. But you need to be particularly concerned if you're. If you're going after one specific elk, mm-hmm. the last thing you want to do is blow him out of the country. Yeah. And so maybe the last couple of days of the season, if you have to get real aggressive, then then do it. But if, if you've patterned a bull, try not to inter- interrupt his pattern. And definitely getting in there too close is going to interrupt his pattern. And I found once you kind of blow him out of their beds, they don't tend to go back there. Um, and so, you know. Uh, sometimes come the last couple of days trying to fill your tag, you just got to go for it. Yeah. Um, I, I want, uh, let's see, number 15, if you find a fresh wallow, it usually means the bull will be back. I love to be, you know, hedging these bulls and paralleling these bulls, and all of a sudden I come across a, a smoking, you know, fresh wallow, and I can either tell that the bulls that I was just following or hedging had just been in it, or I know that I'm real close to their bed, say 150 yards, and there's this wallow, and it's just tore up. Um, those bulls, when it gets hot, especially in Arizona, they cannot stay away from the wallows. They will go and bed their cows down, and then they will slip out to the wallow, quiet, you know, as a mouse, and they'll come and roll in that mud. And... Um, Sometimes when you look at the wallows, you can look where the bull rolled around and you'll actually see where his antlers hit the mud and you can kind of determine where the body was in relation to where the tips of the rack or or what have you are and if it's a good bull or not. Um, Good wallows are hard to find, uh, but when you do, you need to pay close attention because those elk will come back to those wallows. You can set a tree stand up above wallows. You can set a ground blind or you can just build a ground blind or you can just set up in a good position where, you know, and wait for them to come back. The tricky part is the wind. You know, they're going to approach that wallow most all the time with the wind in their face, you know, so it it becomes a bit of a challenge. Uh, That's that big bull texting you right there, Greg. Yeah, he's he's telling me on September 15th I'm going to be at this wallow. (laughs) I think think you said it right, the wind. And then, is it a fresh wallow? I mean, is it like you said? Did they, did did they hit the wallow? I think a lot of guys, you know, may, you know, I've heard of guys, you know, oh, I got this wallow that they're that you know they hit a uh, a lot of bulls um, will hit a will really wallow a ton from when they shed their velvet until uh, the start of September, um, and they'll wallow them out, you know, three four foot deep. Um, but that's you know they're getting ready to move. Um, so you're talking about a fresh wallow in the area where you have a bull that you want to hunt and it's being used within, you know, uh, a quarter to three quarters of a mile from where you just left that bull, you know, right. Is that, I mean, is that, that correct? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Cause I think, I think a lot of guys, they, 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 um, misinterpret sign as far as being fresh or you know what I mean um I you, I can't remember yeah I mean I can't remember who told me this one time or who I heard I, I think it was off an elk tape like 30 years ago but the guy said you know there's a difference between hunting week old elk sign and a day old elk sign you know 
Um, Absolutely. And, and Craig, one of the things with that, I think, in order to determine if a wallow is fresh is there's several things. If you get up to the wallow and where the water actually is, and if it's muddy, if it's discolored, then they've just got out of there. It's, mm-hmm. it's you know, an hour too old. If you get there and, and inside the actual wallow, there's, there's water and it's clear, um, that wa- wallow is not that fresh. If you get to tanks, a lot of times in Arizona, all along the edges of the tanks, you can literally come up and see where there's fresh mud that has been thrown when they're wallowing and you can actually feel it. And if it's still moist and and still, you know, not hard, then you know that that's a pretty fresh wallow. And I think that's important. Wallows are great if they're fresh and they're, they're, they're really getting pounded. Um, and you need to watch the weather if it's hot. Um, that goes into my next point. When it's hot, water is key. When hunting, rutting bulls and temperatures soar, Water can be an extremely effective way to harvest a nice bull. Uh, whether you are for or against sitting water, the point is water will be a congregating place uh, for many herds of elk and many bulls. It often becomes the party place. Uh, sitting in a ground blind or a tree stand during hot days can be a gold mine for hunters uh, seeking to harvest a bull. Yeah. Um, you know, in Arizona, water is key. I mean, they have to drink every single day. And, um, you know, water holes and springs, uh, those are the first places when I draw a unit or I'm guiding a, a hunter in a unit is I want to know where all the water holes are. I want to go check them out for sign. I want to go check out and see uh, if I can determine how many elk are using it, what time of day they're using it. If I'm picking a glassing point, a lot of times I try and pick a glassing point that I can see two or three or four different water sources because that's a good, great place to start, especially in Arizona, New Mexico, Nevada, you know, those states where it's probably more arid. Mm-hmm. No, definitely. I, I mean, how many big bulls have fallen from water? I mean, I know in Arizona, a ton, a ton. Yeah. I, I'm, I'll be the first to admit that I've, uh, I'm not a huge water sitter, not that I'm against it. I just, I'm just not. Um, it has to be perfect for me. I always worry about the wind, but I know for a fact that there's a lot of big bulls that have been taken off water. I mean, it's just, it's, yeah. it's really highly effective if, if, you know, if you have the patience and, and, you know, and you get into, you know, as you guys get with, uh, you know, if guys are, or, or gals have some sort of physical limitation, um, it's, you know, it's, it's a great option. So you still can hunt elk if you can sit water, you know, yeah. and be effective. That bring- that brings me to my next point. Um, at a water hole, let the elk put its head down and start drinking before you draw your bow. Uh, if you're going to sit a water hole for, for big bulls, uh, a bit of advice is um, I, you've got to let them settle in and start drinking because it seems as though they come in a lot of times and they're on edge. Or you're sitting there at the water and the cows come in first and they're on edge and and you've got to let them kind of feel comfortable where they're at. And once they come in and once that bull puts his head down, let them start sipping a little bit. A lot of times I see them after maybe five or seven seconds, they'll lift their head and they'll look around. So know that, you know, if you draw right away, as soon as they put their head down, they're probably going to catch you. Let them get in to start drinking and then draw your bow. I think that's a great tip for people. No, I mean, I'll take it from you on that one. Cause again, I, 
I'm not a huge water sitter, but I just know it's effective. Um, another tip is when you have a shot at a bull and he gives you another shot, take it no matter what. Um, and elk are tough animals, whether using a bow or a rifle, when an elk gives you a second opportunity, always take the shot. This is my opinion. Okay. Elk are extremely resilient and tough. I always tell hunters to shoot them as many times as they can until they fall. When they fall, don't celebrate no, uh, until you know for certain that they're down for good. Um, I like to save as much meat as possible, but I also don't like to lose any animal. So you need to make sure that that elk is down and down for good and he is he is 100% dead before you start high-fiving or doing anything. Um, I had an example of this. Uh, I was hunting uh, the San Carlos Indian Reservation in 2006, and I called this bull in, and he came in from right to left, and his head came under these branches, and I saw that he had a, a, a extra eye guard, and he was just a big, giant front-end bull, and he was one that I wanted to shoot, and I shot him at you know, 10, 12, 13, 14 yards. It was really close. And he kind of turned and made kind of a loop and gave me another broadside shot on his other side, on his now on his right side. I had already had an arrow knocked and shot him again. And it, it's just something that, that was taught to me in that even though my first shot was perfect, he gave me another perfect opportunity and I, and I sent another one in there and, and I'm glad I did. I harvested the bull. He scored 406 and he's a beautiful bull. Um, but I think, I think I see it too many times where people think they have it in the bag and, and elk are tough and you, you've got to make sure that they go down and they stay down. Yeah, no, I, I would concur that you, man, that I've seen situations where you can worry about the meat and this may sound bad to some people, you know, yeah, your, your due diligence is to make good shot the first time. But let's be realist on this. And, and if you hunt for any amount of time, you're going to make a bad shot. And, you know, or even at that, even if you think you make a good shot, um, if they are tough. And if, if, you, if you push that animal, um, a one lung bull can go a heck of a long ways. Um, and, you know, or you hit a bull that's, that's gut shot um or hit them in the liver they can go a long ways and you know by putting another arrow in them or 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 shot on them wherever you can get it um, enables you to break that animal down um and and that's just you're going to get more meat that way than by waiting and hoping that you know that that one arrow was a liver shot and that you're going to be able to track him up there's not going to be any weather issues and and hopefully recover that bull and and have more meat um that it's a higher chance that you're going to get that bull if you get two arrows three arrows or or whatever it may be and you lose a little meat then so be it you know the coyotes will be a little bit happier but you know if you lose that bull completely because he you know the shot wasn't as good as what you thought thought it was i mean you know this jay um what you get by filming um, I don't know how many times, you know, because I film a lot that I thought a shot was great or I thought a shot was bad. And then you go back and review the footage before you start tracking and you're like, oh, man, 
it's a little bit different than I thought it was. Um, yeah. My bull it, in Utah a couple years ago, if I would have had that on film, I would have known a lot more about the shot. But things happen in slow motion, and and you, you know, you go in kind of that time warp phase, and things don't always play out the way you thought they did. You know, so a, a second shot is always warranted, in my opinion. So yeah, I mean, I, I, it goes to my next point. After the shot, no matter how good the shot is, I like to say, and Steve Winery, a friend of mine from Colorado, has probably seen more elk shot than anybody I know, says to give the bull at least 30 minutes, no matter how good the hit. Now, if the bull falls within eyesight and you can sit there and watch him go down and you know he's deader than dead, that may be the only case where 30 minutes. I like to, after the shot, I like to try and um, document as much things as I possibly can. I connect with my hunter or if, or if I'm alone, I try and say, where was I when I shot? Where was the bull? I try and, and, and that's where video helps, where you can replay everything. Where was the hit? Where did, where, you know, did I see the arrow? You know, I try and replay all that. But I, I think if people, if they get one thing out of this conversation that we've been talking about today is, I think this is the most important bit of info in this in this whole talk. After an archery shot, no matter how good you think the hit is, you should wait at least 30 minutes before searching for your trophy. In my mind, that means before you go up to where the animal was shot, before you start looking for an arrow, anything. What I like to do is just sit right down. I like to kind of gather my thoughts, and I like to give that animal time. And 30 minutes even on what I think are great shots, I think 30 minutes is, is, is the time. Um, now, if you hit a bull in the gut, I think that you should give a minimum of six hours, and six hours may be too soon. Now, people are going to maybe give me some criticism for this, but I've been on enough elk kills, and I've I have enough friends that, that sh you know shoot elk all the time, this is kind of the general consensus is six hours. If you know he's gut shot, six hours minimum before you even start. And when you start on an elk that, that whether you know it's a good shot or, or you know it's a bad shot, you go slow. And I can't reiterate enough how slow you need to go and how aware of everything you need to be. And if you have friends that are there helping you, you need to be very clear with them that this is not time for them to be the hero and run out in front and get out of front of the party. They need to stay behind and either, you know, use tape. Here's the blood. Here's last blood. I've seen so many situations where people get antsy and they, they're not patient and they move too fast and they end up jumping an elk that you could have easily gotten a second shot on that, that wasn't already, uh, you know, expiring and, you know, someone else blows them out because they want to find the bull and they're so eager, but they don't understand that being slow and cautious is, is very important. I, th I think tracking, um, especially after the shot in this case, is the most underrated aspect, most under talked about. Um, and I think and that there's more bulls lost in the archery woods than what, what we'd like to admit. I think a lot of it is because, in my, and this is just my opinion, is because 
guys are converting over from rifle hunter rifle hunting they don't they don't they don't fathom how long it takes uh, any animal let alone a big old bull elk to expire and they get caught up in the mental battle of of well well I you know he's dead he's dead or or you know I need to get another shot well with a bow that animal needs to be incapacitated it needs to be uh basically getting sick um and i agree with you 100 percent, jay on every aspect giving a bull six hours if he's gut shot um on going slow and sometimes it's 12 craig yeah, I mean, yeah. if, I, if mm-hmm. I know it's a dead-on gut shot six hours is like minimum before i even mm-hmm. like go up and look at the arrow it's they are it's, tough man yeah they are yeah. freaking they are tough they're they have a will to live I mean, and yeah, so, so what, let's say, let's say you happen, I'm going to air this out. Let's say you happen. I shot that bull in Utah and, um, I shot him in a rainstorm. I hit him back. I thought it was guts. I cussed myself because it was a poor shot. And I'm, I'm going to throw this. I have other situations I could talk about that are guiding, but I don't want to bring you know, sure. any, any of my hunters, um, sure. into the, I want to talk about my own personal. So if I take heat off this, it's my own personal thing. Um, I hit that bull back, buried it to the fletching. And, uh, when it was raining hard and I mean, everything was just soaked. It was still raining. It was one of those soakers. Um, and I left out of there, went back down to the truck and I knew I'd made a poor shot. Um, I went and stuck. The only thing I did is I waited there for about, I tried to get another arrow on him first, um, but I wasn't able to get another arrow on him because the cover, cover was blocking uh, any. I was going to shoot him in the neck. I didn't care. Um, I stuck an arrow on the ground where he stood probably 15, 20 minutes after I'd shot him. And then I just bailed out of there, went back down to the uh, truck, um, and, and then met up with my parents and, you know, made the call right then and there that, that I was going to let that bull lay all night. Um, it was the, the, one of those situations where you get rain and you think you got to go on that animal because it's going to rain. It's going to wash out my truck, my tracks that I'm going to be able to follow this animal and the blood trail. But the other option, so I had one option was to either start on his track even though I knew it was a poor shot and he probably wasn't going to be dead. And if he was alive, which in my mind he was, that I would probably bump him and lose him for good. Or I had the other option and I'm playing the worst case scenario on both sides. The other option was to let him lay all night. Perhaps maybe it was a better shot than I thought. Perhaps maybe I lose a little meat. Either way, but but you recover the whole yeah, elk and get most of them. Either either yes, either way, both situations suck, and and it was my fault. Either way, because I made a poor shot, and they happen, they happen. I don't I don't want to be you know in this this glass house here and pretend that they don't happen. They happen more times than what we talk about them because we're scared of anti hunters or, you know, getting a bat. They happen. And that's why I think tracking has been left out of of the fundamentals of what what a lot of the youth hunters know today. Um and why we're such 
piss poor trackers today um, is because we're afraid to talk about this aspect. And I'm, and you can tell I'm freaking like salivating over here passionate about it because I think it's, it's huge. And anyway, I left that bull and we didn't find him until noon the next day. And I was able to get some meat out of, off of him. I lost a lot of meat, but he was dead within 15 minutes after I shot him because the way the angle of the arrow shot up in him, I didn't see that. And film would have, would have helped me out there a ton, but I had two choices. And I think a lot of things are a lot of times when guys get in these situation, they rush, they rush. And then they, they go through, they basically, um, kind of feel guilty because they make a poor shot. So they want to go and end this animal's life quickly and they want to get this over quickly. And what happens is you already made a piss poor shot. That's done. That's in the past. You have to do what's best from that point forward to get the best outcome from that point forward. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is I think a lot of guys rush on piss poor shots because they want to end it quicker when it ends up being, uh, it just compounds the problem and, and, ha and, and probably makes it even worse and, and, and doesn't, doesn't end in a good result um, either way. So, anyway. Absolutely, and I think that's a great story, and I think people can take a lot from that. Um, Craig, I, I hope that these tips uh, help our listeners uh, on their elk hunts this year. I want to thank you for um, giving your insight here. We covered a lot of ground today. Um, there's obviously a lot more tips and tactics to cover, um, but that that was a great um that was a great one hour, um, you know, recap of, of some tips and I appreciate you being on. I'm looking forward to the elk season. I know this year you're going to be guiding in, in, uh, unit 10. I'm going to be guiding in unit nine. And, um, I'm just, uh, think this year's going to be a, a very good year. Um, the monsoons dried up a little bit, but I think antler growth is pretty darn good. We're going to see if it rivals 2005, which was a banner year. Um, even if it's not as good as 2005, it's going to be one of the best years we've had. And, and I'm going to say, you know, a, quite a while. And um, I know you're looking forward to it. And uh, I know a lot of the listeners are looking forward to it. So thanks for being on. And uh, thanks for being a friend of the podcast as always. Awesome, Jay. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Guys, I wanted to give you a quick reminder of the GoHunt.com Insider giveaway. This month of August, they're giving away 10 Kuyu sleeping bags. Uh, the, uh, the value of that is $4,500. The Kuyu sleeping bags are most technically advanced sleeping bags on the market. I've been using the same exact bag they're giving away, a, a super down 30 degree uh, size long for over a year now, and I love it. Um, all you have to do is be an Insider member. Um, each month, random names are pulled from the Insider uh, member list, and they give away awesome gear, rifles, optics, apparel, and even landowner tags. Uh, they've given away four landowner tags in July. They gave away a doll sheep hunt uh, worth $22,500 in June. So remember to sign up for GoHunt.com Insider and be a member. All you have to do is... Uh, go to GoHunt.com Insider uh, forward slash Insider. Click on the blue Join Now button. Use the J. Scott promo code, and they will also send you a $50 Kuyu gift card uh, when you sign up. So it's a pretty good deal. Uh, guys, 
Uh, thanks for listening to the podcast. Until next time, God bless you.